Hi, welcome to The Pipeline, all things CICD and DevOps podcast hosted by Jacqueline Salinas, Director of Ecosystem and Community at the CD Foundation. Today we are joined by Tracy Reagan. She is CEO and co-founder of Deploy Hub. She's an expert in configuration management and pipeline lifecycle practices with a hyper-focus on microservices and cloud-native architecture. She currently serves as a board member of the Continuous Delivery Foundation, where she is elected general member representative. Tracy is a recognized evangelist in microservices and the Continuous Delivery Pipeline. She is the creator of the Continuous Delivery Foundation Interactive Landscape, a blog contributor of the CDF, and speaks at many DevOps events such as CNCF's KubeCon and CloudBees DevOps World. Tracy is also a DevOps Institute ambassador and speaks at AWS Marketplace webinar educational events. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today in the first episode of The Pipeline, all things CICD and DevOps. Today, we are going to be focused on configuration management and why it's needed now more than ever. But before we get started on that, I have a segment called My DevOps Journey, and I'm interested in finding out how exactly you got started in DevOps. Well, first, thank you for having me, Jacqueline. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be the first. I'm, um, I'm honored, uh, and it's been great working with the CD Foundation over the last year. Yeah, you know, DevOps is a funny thing. I think most of us sort of stub our toe and find ourselves uh, in DevOps. Um, when I, when I, the first I ever heard of the term DevOps goes back quite a long time. I was a uh, mainframe programmer right out of college, and something called Endeavor um, sort of hit my desk, and I had to learn something called Endeavor. Now, most people don't know this, but Endeavor stands for Environment for Dev and Ops, um, and it's a mainframe tool. And what that tool did was, uh, as I was programming, and I was a CICS DB2 developer, as I was programming, I could uh, basically check in, and it would then handle everything. It was successful. It would automatically push it into the testing environment so testers could work with it. At that point, testers could um, approve it to be pushed to production, and it could be pushed with uh, with additional releases. Kind of sounds like CD, doesn't it? (laughs) So while most people think that uh, continuous delivery is sort of new, it actually started on the mainframe. Well, when the, um, when the, when OS2 sort of hit mainframe development, I wanted to get in um, writing C code and I discovered there were, there were really no tools like Endeavor on the distributed platform. I had gotten a job at UPS. They were doing a huge, huge project to um, revamp their entire system on uh, on OS2. IBM uh, Professional Services uh, dug me up and and put me out there as an OS2 programmer. And once I got my coding done, um, they pushed me over onto the um, at the side of the house where we started having to connect DB2 and the OS2 database manager. And it is core to a DevOps practice. Um, and that is where I started. So again, it, it feels like I kind of stubbed my toe and, you know, (laughs) fell into it. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely fell into DevOps. (laughs) Exactly. It kind of happens. You know, it's an interesting area. If you're willing to tackle hard problems, 
And at the time at UPS, we had spent quite a bit of time writing um, this new, what they called hub and feeder system. And we were struggling with getting it out the door. Um, and we were even struggling from the IBM side because OS2 was quite new. And we were discovering that we had just, diff we had just versioning issues, different versions of DB2 and different version of into our binaries that were, we were creating. And if those things didn't line up, you had a really bad day. And in the end of the day, it, it you know even back then it was about the operation side of the house coordinating efforts with the developer side of the house, so that when you built your application, your binary, it was built on top of the correct version of the infrastructure. And even though that's been several years ago, it's the same exact problem today, whether we be looking at a traditional model or a microservice Kubernetes model. So your experience with this project and UPS um, and just, you know, general exp work experience over the years, how has that influenced Deploy Hub and the product that you guys develop? That's a good question um, because, you know, it, again, it may be a different environment, it may be a different platform, but it's still the same problem. So when we looked at uh, Deploy Hub, so b between um, my days as a contractor for IBM Global Services and Deploy Hub, I started a company called OpenMake Software, and we created a product called Meister. And Meister is a tool that still lives today. It's been out there for 20 plus years, and we still have customers running it today. And what it does is it solves that problem that I just talked about, where the developers must understand the correct libraries to link into their binary so that it runs in production. Now, Meister was created during the object-oriented programming um, craze that we went through uh, in the uh, late 90s, whereby everybody was writing reusable components, and you had to figure out ways to pull those into your, your, um, your binary. So this is a basically a dependency management puzzle when you try to do that. So we solved it in the compile and link world, and that's why some really big uh, systems are still using our software. When we saw mi the microservice uh, market um, start getting some traction, we started looking at it from a perspective of configuration management and release management. So all of the intelligence that we had built into uh, what we call Meister, or Meister tool that, that is under the OpenMix software umbrella, relates to microservice dependency management. So the difference, though, in a microservice world compared to a traditional CI-CD pipeline is that the build part goes away. And instead of making these really careful decisions about what source code and libraries need to go into your binary, you create a microservice and you push it out to your cluster and the linking and discussion about uh, how the application is sort of formed actually happens at runtime and you define it in what's called a deployment file. So instead of having all of this important configuration management done up front at this CI step where you uh, create your binary and you define your application software package, now you leave that up to the deployment step. So what we did when we created Deploy Hub is we, we saw this as a uh, configuration management and release management um, issue and how do we address it. And what we did was is we created a 
a almost like an internal marketplace of plot of uh, microservices that is has a domain structure that you can say as an application developer, I need this microservice and this microservice and this microservice. I'm going to pull it all together in a logical view of an application. We generate the deployment file and then push it out. Now, what that does is it creates a central hub of information about how a microservice is configured for deployment so that operations can see it and developers can see it. That's pretty cool. I think so. I would have to say that along the road, though, um, you know, there were, uh, when I was in New York, I had a pretty large group of, of friends um, that were all into learning new software technologies. And some of them are the ones that helped me move off of a mainframe and onto a, a, a distributed platform. And I began understanding the importance of community at that point. Uh, you can't, this, this kind of technology, whether it be moving from the mainframe to a distributed environment or from a distributed um, monolithic to a microservice, we can't be successful without the community. And I always go back to that because it's the community that has allowed me to learn as much as I have learned over the course of my career. And now I'm in a position that I can share. And we need to keep that in mind in everything that we do. Uh, and in, right now, it's super, super important. Right now, it's, it's so important that things like meetups now people are starting to come back to. There was, a, there was a point in time that user group meetings nobody showed up at. But I'm, I'm seeing a shift in that, and it's pretty exciting. How, how long ago did user meetings start? I, I mean, I think meetups probably came onto the scene more in the 2000s. It, what yeah, was the original meetup like? So the, the original ones were called, you know, we called them user group meetings. And so you would, uh, it would be around a particular tool. Um, let's say uh, CVS. I used to go to CVS user group meet, meetings, and then I started going to PVCS user group meetings. And they were very similar to what we're doing today, where we have um, uh, pretty much most of that was done via old-fashioned um, email. You didn't have anything like a meetup platform to, to drive your, your audience. So a lot of it was held at companies. They would, uh, you would go to a New York, you might go to a banker's trust and they had a room that they would always hold it. And generally they would, would have been a really big user of one of those tools. And so like PBCS would come and they would host it and they would have lunch. And you would find out about it a lot of times through word of mouth. Uh, if you were a user of that product, they would make sure that each company was notified that there was gonna be some kind of a user group meeting. So there was a lot of word of mouth that, that that went into it and most of it was driven not by really the a user group community but by a by the the vendor themselves so you always got a, a kind of a focused um, experience around one particular tool as opposed to the meetups today where it's broader where you have it like we manage the New Mexico CICDF um, uh, meetup and we have topics we had uh, a Palo Alto networks talking about security we had Descartes labs talking about Spinnaker um, we have um, a person um, that's going to be talking about Jenkins and Jenkins X so that's the difference it's not a single 
pool focus it is a broader uh, real community effort today as opposed to what it used to be. And I think that's why they died off. People got tired of hearing product pitches. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's also just, you know, a reminder to the community that we are always hungry, hungry for content. Um, whether you have a podcast idea, webinar idea, case study, or if you're even interested in just hosting and, and helping coordinate meetups, um, we have an ambassador program that is really great for, for facilitating all of that. Um, so just kind of shifting back to our original topic, Tracy, um, sorry, my internet connection is unstable and I've also got a snoring dog in the background. So. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, in, in traditional, in a traditional development process, what did configuration management look like and how has that changed? Yeah, so um, configuration management is in, in a traditional model is what CI is. So when we think about CI/CD, we got, we keep adding the CI in there um, because it started us. And what you would do is you would is it relevant though? Is it relevant to continue to keep the CI? Well, I think that it is today, but I don't think it will be in the future um, because in traditional models, you're building a monolithic. You, you check all your code into a, a like GitHub. Um, you might label it. Uh, you pull it out and you compile it. And you have somebody really smart who really understands the um, how the application should be built. And they put it together in a package. And it used to be in the old days, I'm not kidding you, we would do this once a month. Um, and I actually played the role of a buildmeister, and I hated the job, but it was a critical part, and I was always, I'm a foot soldier, I'm always willing to step up. It was, and I learned more about configuration management as a build person than I did it with, than I ever did as a developer, because you begin understanding, well, um, this takes too long. If you're going to do it once a month, it would take me three or four days to figure out all of the branching and what we needed to merge back in and what I actually needed to, to put in the build. So what CI did said, don't wait so long. Let's do that automatically. Let's check in the code and have a trigger say, wait 10 minutes, and after 10 minutes, pull all the code out and recompile it. So it was being compiled on a, on a high frequency basis so that you would see if two developers branched their uh, same piece of code and you couldn't bring it back to the trunk. Those kinds of, of discussions that I just had, most of that goes away with microservices. Because with the microservices, you have a small function, um, or you might have a microservice that performs multiple functions, but it doesn't perform a whole lot of functions like a big binary does. And it's not gonna include 3,000 lines of code. It might include 300 lines of Python code. It's not compiled. Python isn't. Some languages are, like Golang, it's compiled, but it's a second. It doesn't take any time to translate it to a binary. And then what you do is you build a, a container image and you push it up to a container registry. That's the new build format. You don't have to do that on a high frequency basis because we're not trying to solve a compile and link issue as we did in traditional monolithic. 
So continuous delivery is going to be more and more critical and continuous integration is going to be less important as we move into microservices. And why I say CD is more important is because now we have a scaling issue. Instead of having one binary that we're pushing across a workflow, we have literally hundreds of microservices that have their own workflows. So in order to really push those things forward, you need automation and you need visibility. So are these, uh, would you say these are the key changes in the microservice architecture? Or well, I think that's one big one, and that's what causes the configuration management issues downstream. So if you think about how we, as users, let's put a user hat on, how we interact with software. Um, we, let's say you're, you're, you're using a version of Zoom, for example, and you're having issues with Zoom. You call a ticket in, they may ask you to give to look at the about box for Zoom and find out what, what version of Zoom you're running on. They may have a place for, to be able to find what version of Zoom you're running on. That's an application version. You're at, you as an end user can't say, I'm using this particular version of a microservice. That's the back. That's the that's the backward configuration management issue that we have with microservices, because with a microservice architecture, you lose the concept of an application and therefore an application version. So if you're writing a, a, a teller application for a bank and you have a teller calling in to the support line and they're having an issue with a, uh, the teller application, you generally want to know what version of the application they're using. From there, we need to be able to show a collection of microservices that make up that application so we can determine what occurred, what microservice may have gotten updated that, that caused the, the application to break. Those are the kinds of configuration details that we would have been able to see in a standard build, but now we struggle seeing in a microservices environment. And that's where Deploy Hub fits in the middle to solve that gap. Okay, can you can you elaborate more on what Deploy Hub is doing to solve these issues? Yeah, we have um, we built we, we looked at it from a version control, not from a build. You know, like we, you, generally the the uh, when you talk about a software compiled, the version is really important. So when we looked at the solving the microservice management um, issue, we did it. We did two things different. The first thing we did is we put a back-end relational database um, on it so that we could actually do versioning of every single change that we see in, an, in a microservice and therefore an application version. The second smart thing we did is we built domains around it because microservices should be shared across teams. So in a, in a purest microservice world, what you're doing instead of writing a single teller application for a bank is you're creating a platform from which you can create any kind of application for the bank. So standard error logging, standard security, standard user management, all of those kinds of microservices should be shared by all applications across the bank. So we saw this first as a domain hierarchy issue where you can define domains, so you can have a security domain, a standard logging domain, a standard user uh, contact domain. And from there, application teams build on top of it. So you think about it as a pyramid with all those standard microservices structured and in domain so you can go find them to reuse them and then build your application on top of it. Now, once you've defined your application, 
the other clever thing that we did is we said we don't necessarily want a developer to ever have to go through and track every time a microservice changes through our tool. So we have APIs that you can connect into the CD pipeline that says every time a microservice has a build, we know a new one's coming along, we're going to auto increment the application version and push that application version out based on that new microservice. So if that application breaks, we can tell you immediately which microservice was changed and what caused the problem. So the domain structure, the, the backend database, what, now oftentimes we get people asking us, why did you put a backend database tool into a, into a, you know, a tool that, that handles deployments? And the answer is, is that we are doing deployments incrementally. Instead of taking like a zip file and moving the whole binary across, we have we we can take any component and move any component at any point in time. So your application could have 10 microservices and database updates and environment variable changes. Those are all individual components. And instead of having to move the entire uh, monolithic, we are truly moving independently um, deployed objects whether it be a database update and a microservice or whether it be an environment variable update. And that's why the backend database was so important because it allows us to do that high level of, of versioning, just like a version control tool, just like backward chaining. Very cool. Very complicated things. Definitely has gone over my head. Tracy, <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. Well, uh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's our very first podcast. I hope you folks enjoyed it. Um, more content is going to be coming down the pipeline. No okay, stay safe. <laughs> and everyone <laughs> stay safe during these uncertain times.